Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Two weeks ago, we began our Advent series by introducing us to the idea, the possibility, that God is so gracious to us that he still answers the prayers that we have stopped praying. That he still answers the prayers that we have stopped praying. Just because we have stopped praying for something, it doesn't mean that he stops answering. And we looked at the life of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Last week, Don took us to both John 1 and 1 John 1. He highlighted that in his gospel, John wrote to prove the deity of Jesus, thus assuming his humanity. Then he highlighted that in John's epistle, he does the opposite. He writes to prove Jesus' humanity, thus assuming his deity. And both are available on podcast. Today we continue to find ourselves in the, series, in the season of Advent, a time when Christians have traditionally expressed their desire for Jesus to come. And of course, we know today that Jesus did come as a baby 2,000 years ago. But there is something that stirs, I believe, in us as the followers of Christ, perhaps at another level, which is a desire for Jesus to come into our worlds, our areas of influence, once again at Christmas like no other time. A desire for Jesus to come into our homes, a desire for Jesus to come into our workplace, a desire for Jesus to come to our city, a desire for Jesus to come anew and afresh into our hearts. Maybe to use slightly different language, this is a season that stirs a longing in all of us for heaven on earth. This desire for heaven on earth is actually as old as the book of Genesis. It's as old as the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. It is the desire of all humanity, whether known or not, but made by God for that incredible sense of of the ability to know him and to use the, the language of Genesis to walk in the cool of the evening with him. In previous messages and forums and discussions here at Gateway, you you will have heard us talk about something called thin places. It is a term that is used throughout the centuries to describe places and spaces that feel like heaven comes closer when we are there, where the distance between heaven and earth feels just wafer thin. It is an old Celtic Christian term for those rare locales where the distance between heaven and earth just seems to collapse. Or, to put it in another way for our message this evening, where the holy and the human touch. So often, when we think of thin places, we think of random Scottish islands if we follow the Celtic theme, or perhaps the great walks of the Milford Track with its forested mountains and its stunning waterfalls, or maybe even Abel Tasman with its temperate climate, its golden beaches and jade-colored oceans. We think about beautiful mountain ranges and, and pilgrims who go on silent retreats, and much more so that we can experience heaven on earth, and probably the ultimate retreat 
that one can ever go to and go through is the Camino in southern Europe that takes you on a pilgrimage to the city of Santiago. And you, you walk for hundreds of miles and at different stages you come across things that introduce you to a walk of faith with Jesus Christ. I'm guessed that many of us, if not most of us at some stage, have enjoyed a similar experience of finding God in our own way, our own thin place, as it were. And maybe you've left the busyness of a life or, or the city and you find yourself in a quiet place. And in the beauty of that experience, it has helped you find the presence of God. It is a thin place for you. It's almost as if heaven touched earth and you had the privilege of being there at that moment in time. If this is something that is new and random for you, I would definitely recommend seeking out those kind of experiences and finding rest and retreat in such places. But as we are in week three of our Christmas meditations, there is a question I have been asking myself about, and it is this. Can we experience heaven on earth here in Hamilton in 2023? Can we experience heaven on earth here in Hamilton in 2023? If so, what does the Christmas story tell us that we should expect to happen when heaven does touch earth? Because if nothing else, the Christmas story shows us that heaven came to earth in a crazy, busy season because a census was being taken place. It came to a crazy, busy town whose numbers had swelled because of the influx of people that had to be counted. At this first Christmas, heaven intersected history and it almost gives us a taste, an insight into what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven actually invades the kingdom of faith, or the kingdom of earth, because you see, there is a cry of scripture, and the cry of scripture is that, not that heaven is up there and that earth is down here. The cry of scripture is actually that heaven is closer than we think. We find that the teaching of scripture is that there will be moments when it feels like heaven touches earth and the separation between these two things is much less than we actually think it is. So I want us to explore what can we expect, what to expect when an answer to the prayer that Jesus encouraged his, his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, actually arrives. What, we, what do we expect when it actually happens? What does it look like when heaven touches earth here in Hamilton and the wider Waikato that many of us now call home? So I want to read the first seven verses of Luke's Gospel, chapter two. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, 
and she gave birth to their firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Tonight, as we unpack this subject, I want to highlight three things. History, integrity, and humility. History, integrity, and humility. I'd like to ask us all a question. Do you ever find the Bible boring? And my guess is, because you're in church on a Sunday, none of us is gonna raise our hands and admit to such a confession that we do find some of the parts of the Bible boring. But if we are 100% honest, and being 100% honest in a church building on a Sunday is probably a good idea, you will probably agree with me that there are sections of the Bible that are slightly less than exciting. There are a list of rules in Leviticus. There are tribes listed in numbers. There are lists of kings and people in kings. There's a list of names in Matthew that don't make the most exciting reading. And then we come to Luke chapter two. And we are about to be introduced to the most significant moment in the history of this planet, a moment that will divide BC before Christ and Anno Domini AD, a moment that will be celebrated by billions of people for eternity, and yet it is introduced to us in a less than exciting way. We are told that the Roman authorities are creating a list of all the people that are in their kingdom. We're told that Caesar Augustus was in charge, and for some reason, a strange reason, a reason I don't know, that Quirinius was the governor of, of Syria. And for our message today, it is worthy of note that for many years, scholars tried to claim that Luke was, in fact, inaccurate in what he had written here in these first few verses of chapter two. It's p polite to say, that every effort has been made for years and years by scholars over the years to discredit and rubbish this part of the gospel narrative and the truth about the coming of baby Jesus. It was charged that Luke had erred in suggesting that all the world was to be enrolled. The critics argued that since Herod the Great was king over Judea, the Jews of that region would not have to be subject to Roman taxation. It was claimed that Augustus never ordered a general census of the Roman Empire. It was alleged that Quirinius was not governor of Syria at the time of Christ's birth. But thankfully to no avail, every argument raised against what Luke had written has been disproved through the study of the original text and archeological discoveries and ac accurate research done in the first century history. So let's go back to the narrative and discover why the establishing of the facts, the actual facts, are important to us this evening. You see, there's, there's no drum roll. There's no flashing lights. There's no big social media announcement, just a load of boring details. But this actually is no mistake. This is how it is meant to be. You see, for Luke, he wanted to root this planet-defining moment in history, in real life, in the, in the everyday lives 
of ordinary people. Thus I believe the effort spent by many in trying to disprove what he wrote. You see, there's a real temptation when we come to the Christmas story that it can be categorized as mythology. It can be categorized as a fictional fable that has been created to explain why some weird people believe the things that they do or they have believed. But for Luke, for Dr. Luke, the Christmas story, it is not mythology, it is history. And this is why we have these first three verses in our text. Luke wants us to know that these events took place with real people, like historically recognized world leaders who were leading historically recognized world powers. And whilst, of course, we may find his tone, the details, somewhat boring, they are reminding us of something very important every time we read this story. Every time we come to Christmas, we are reminded of something incredibly special, and it is this. God is not just found in the miraculous, but that God is also found in the mundane. There is a temptation sometimes to think that God only shows up in places that are nothing like real life. There is a temptation to think that God only shows up on mountaintops, that he only turns up in retreat centers, or in the next color conference, or Easter camp, or any camp. That God only turns up where there are burning bushes, or the next high-profile meeting, or the next worship night, or the next new thing, which of course, he may well do. But this text reminds us that God shows up in the ordinary and the mundane. He shows up in everyday life. He shows up in our offices, in our homes, in our classrooms, and in hospital wards, and especially in hospices, and on the building site. Jack Hayford, writing about the Christmas story, says this, most of our poetic notions need to be challenged. Why? Because if we clothe the original in lavish garments of imagined unnaturalness, we will suppose that supernatural happenings only come in superb settings. You see, even our text shows us that God turns up in times of inconvenience. He turns up in times of injustice. He shows up in times of oppression. Even in those times when we think that our life is spinning out of control and in some ways that we feel that someone else is in control of our lives, he invades those times. Even in those moments, heaven touches earth because heaven invades history, because heaven invades, invades the mundane of everyday life. Secondly, I'd like to see from the text that heaven is attracted to integrity. If you thought the first three verses of this text today were a little less than exciting, then the next two are not any better. It just simply says, so Joseph also went up. So Joseph. See, in the Gospels, Joseph is portrayed as, a, as an average guy. He's a good guy. He doesn't perform any miracles. He doesn't particularly have any spectacular gifts or skills or talents. He does nothing spectacular. He just shows up. He just shows up and does the right thing. I very, very seldom ever give marriage advice. 
I am still learning all the lessons that I need to learn. And, um, but I'm going to share something to us guys this evening. You may think that I'm being humorous, but I don't think that I am. If you are thinking of getting married, or if you've been married for five years, or if you've been married for 40 years, let me give you some advice. If you want to thrill and delight your wife-to-be, if you want to do something for, for her that is off the romantic scale, then learn to be a man that shows up and just does the right thing. Turn up and do the right thing. I think your wife may prefer this more than getting flowers. Perhaps try both. We see that Mary had a choice. Mary has a choice in this whole thing. So Joseph just turning up is amazing. You see, Mary had to be there when Jesus was born, but Joseph has this choice. He could have walked away, he could have run away. He had found out that the woman he was about to marry is pregnant and he is not the dad. So he could have left, but he chooses to stay. He chose to honor the commitment he had made. He was pledged to be married to Mary, so he chose to honor his word. Joseph was a man of real integrity. Because of this, because of his decision to go with his integrity, the choices that he made put him in the place where he would now see heaven touch earth. His integrity ushered him into a moment when he would see, he would behold, he would enjoy, if I can put it like that, heaven touching earth. You see, if he had made other choices that lacked integrity, he would have missed the opportunity. His integrity positioned him to experience heaven on earth. Let me say the following very gently. Our experience of heaven on earth will never be about our gifts, our talent, our intellect, our hard work, or our perceived spirituality. It will be about our character. It will be about the posture of our heart. In this passage, the Christmas story clearly teaches us that heaven touches earth at the wrong place and the wrong time, but with the right people. God is always looking out for people to trust. He's always looking out for people he can trust. He is always looking out for people he can trust with the things that are most valuable to him. You see, due to the fact that Joseph did not run away when the pressure was on, due to this fact, then God was able to trust him when they had to escape to Egypt. He could trust them when they were about to become refugees. When God needed someone, that he could trust to take care of his son, not only whilst here on earth, but also as a refugee in exile, he knew he could trust Joseph. The ceiling of our life will always be the ceiling of our character and integrity. The ceiling of our life will always be based on our integrity and not our gifting. Our gifting might get us into the room, but it is our integrity that will keep us there. And it is our integrity that will allow us to grow and develop and thrive. So many of us are focused on getting to the right place at the right time in our life that we forgot there is so much more important to be the right person. We forget that God is more concerned about the person we are rather than the places we want to go to. 
often our mentality and our prayers can be, God, I want to go to a certain university, I want to live in a certain house, certain suburb or surroundings, and whilst at it, I want to work for a certain company, that's my job. But God is far more concerned about our integrity than he is our geography. He is more concerned about who we are becoming rather than where we are going. If we are to learn one thing from the Christmas story, it is that heaven is attracted to integrity. And one final thought, heaven is found in humility. When heaven ever touches earth, there will always be humility. The two go together. You see, because our text reminds us that the savior of the world arrives in a stable. There is no room for him at a royal palace and there is definitely no room for him in the local inn. He is simply wrapped in cloths, placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. There is a well-known passage in the New Testament and it is considered to be one of the first hymns that the early church ever sang. And it is found in Philippians 2, especially verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. (laughs) Philippians Philippians 2, 5, and 6 say these words. Let the same, same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. You see, as God, Jesus knew what it was to have unlimited power, unlimited presence, unlimited knowledge. He could have chosen any career. He could have chosen any house, any title, any bank balance. Jesus could have chosen any point in history to come to planet Earth. When he came, he could have coerced us to worship him. He could have intimidated us with his power. He could have impressed us with his amazing power. But this ancient song says that he made himself nothing it says in verses seven and eight but emptied himself taking the form of a slave assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even a death on a cross jesus limited himself (laughs) jesus came to earth in the most humble way possible a baby lying in an animal's feeding trough that i doubt was clean then of course He dies the most humiliating death, death on a cross. I believe that Jesus does this very purposeful. He did it for a reason. He wanted us then and now to understand something very radical. He wanted us to understand that in heaven's economy, the way that heaven does things, true greatness comes through humility. That becoming nothing is the pathway to becoming something. That if you want to be somebody, then you have to be a nobody. Mike Bickle says it so well. He says, humility is the ultimate standard of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. A number of years ago, shortly after we had arrived, a number of us on staff, and I don't at all recall the context, we did something to help us understand the different strengths and the different abilities of the staff undertaking the exercise. We used this book, which I'm sure many of you will have heard of, the online course as well, called Strengths Finders. The idea is that you take that online course and you are given your top five strengths out of a possible 34. 
I'm not really, if I'm honest, into this sort of exercise, but I actually found it very helpful and very insightful. But if you'd asked me today what my top five strengths were, I couldn't tell you. I, it wouldn't be memory, because I can't remember what they were. Of course, the idea is that you discover your strengths and then you lean into them, you lean into those strengths, so that hopefully that will help you and shape you and make you more successful. These such courses can be very helpful and very informative, but I sometimes wonder whether we should create another book called Weakness Finder. Naturally, we are so grateful to God for God's gifts and we are grateful for the talents that he has given us. We are grateful for the gift mix we have in our life. We are grateful for the gift mix that we have in our faith community. But God does have this really annoying habit of using our weaknesses. He has got this really annoying habit of using our frailties. And in these moments in humility, where we understand that we have nothing, we have nothing to give him, God uses those moments of weakness far more than he uses any other times in our life. You see, in our 21st century modern world, this sounds absolute crazy. But when the kingdom of heaven invades earth, humility leads to greatness. Submission leads to victory. You see, the story of Christmas makes it abundantly clear that glory comes through humility. It is important to understand and grasp what this word humility means because we all know, or perhaps should know, that we, we don't beat ourselves up as Christians. It's not about going around and developing some low self-esteem. We don't go around listing our faults and rehearsing them every time and reminding ourselves of where we fall down. Very famously, C.S. Lewis, like only C.S. Lewis can say, he said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. You see, humility is a choice. Humility means that I don't have to have all the answers. I realize that the world does not depend on me for its existence. Humility allows me to resign as general manager or policeman of the universe. I allow God to be God. When I choose to humble myself, I am able to live with the tension between the real and the ideal in my life. My ideal for my marriage, my kids and my life, as opposed to the way things could be right now. You always have the tension. Humility is accepting life with gratitude, even though things aren't perfect. You see, the words human, humility, humanity, and humor all come from the same root word. Humility is, in essence, being in touch with your humanity. It is having a realistic view of both your strengths and weaknesses, and heaven is attracted to humility. Heaven comes to earth through humility. You see, humility is attractive because it accepts other people. You feel valued and important when you're in, in the presence of humanity. The humble person is not pressing their agenda. Rather, they are listening to your needs, your dreams, your fears. They don't have to be the loudest voice. 
Humility is other-centric. It is also in a position to trust in God. You tend to trust someone who trusts God. They depend on their heavenly Father because they know their limitations without him. You see, humility is found in the teachable person, a person who knows they don't have all the answers and then don't continue to make them up. Humility is found in the thankful person, a person who doesn't feel that they are entitled to or deserve anything. (coughs) They just see everything as a gift. See, humility is found in the person who will very quickly say sorry. They realize that they don't get it right all the time. Humility is found in the person who rejoices in the success of others because they realize that they don't have to be the center of attention all the time. And you know, humility is found in the person who accepts correction without taking offense. They know that sometimes, and they know perhaps that they often just get it wrong. Humility is found in the person who actually prays because they realize that they cannot live one more day without the power, the presence, the provision, and the peace of God. So as we go back to our original question, let me ask it again. What does the Christmas story teach us about how we sh- what we should expect to happen when heaven touches earth? I believe that it teaches us three things, that God's presence can be found in the mundane, in the everyday, ordinary experiences of our life because heaven invades history. I believe it teaches us that God is deeply concerned about our character because heaven is attracted to integrity. I believe it also teaches us that God comes in the stable and feeding troughs. Why? Because heaven is found in humility. With these three things in mind, perhaps as you take time to reflect on them, my prayer for all of us is that we'll experience something of the touch of heaven on earth this Christmas in our lives and in our city. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. 